You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast, and today we are welcoming Dr. Elizabeth Adams back to the show. Dr. Elizabeth is a clinical psychologist who specializes in child development, child behavior, and working with children and families. Dr. Elizabeth is also the co-founder of a parent coaching app called Trussell, and I absolutely loved having her on the show before, and I welcomed her back today to talk to us about sleep. In today's episode, we go all in on the different polarizing topics around sleep how to choose or whether to choose to co-sleep or to sleep train if they have to be on such opposite extremes or if there are kind of these in-between middle grounds that you can follow. But most importantly, how you can decide for yourself what sleep approach and what values you have around sleep for you and your family and your new little babe. One of the things that I absolutely love about Dr. Elizabeth is how current she is in the research and how she really understands how to interpret and read research. So we really go in on all the research here to give you the data and what the research is saying about the different types of sleep training or co-sleep so that you can make a really informed decision about how you would like to shape your values and sleep philosophy. Before diving into the interview, let's read the review of the week. This iTunes review comes from Dr. Pickering and it reads so validating. Finally got around to listening to this podcast and I am so glad I did. Incredibly valuable information that I can apply personally and professionally. Thank you for putting this out there, Erica. Thank you so much for your review. I absolutely love hearing from each and every one of you. And it's amazing to hear from my colleagues and peers and have them cheering me on from the sidelines as well. So thank you so much for that. And let's get to today's interview. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Elizabeth, I am so excited to have you back today. I have been really contemplating how we're going to do this whole sleep discussion because I know it's a really heated topic. Um, And in thinking about and in researching who to bring on, you came right to mind because I really trust your approach and your surveying of all of the research. So thank you so much for coming back and joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to be here and I'm excited to talk about sleep. It is a hot topic, as you say. Topic. And that's something that comes up obviously Mm -hmm. for for every mom, every parent family, because sleep is so central to our well-being and our routines and our mood Mm -hmm. and so many things. Um, 
So before getting into yeah. it, you are a clinical psychologist. You specialize in working with families and children. Why don't you let us know a little bit about who you are? You've done some research and I feel like, you know, let's give them the lay of the land. Sure. So my background is um, as a clinical psychologist, as you mentioned, that's my training. And I've spent the last 15 years working with children and families in a number of settings. I've worked in, in hospitals and in inclusion school settings and clinics. And uh, recently I transitioned. I am now the, the co-founder and the chief clinical officer of Trestle. Um, and Trestle is is a a company where we provide on-demand parent support for parents of young children, and uh, parents can talk, text, or video call with their dedicated expert and get answers to all sorts of questions um, because I really wanted to be able to provide support for parents around everyday parenting uh, issues like sleep. Because it's a big one, and give parents a trusted place to turn to where they can get evidence based advice as they're navigating the journey of parenting. Yeah, that's one of the things I really respect about you and why I thought you were a really great fit for this topic is because um, I want to try and give some non biased advice today or, you know, survey the mm-hmm. research of sleep and the whole land of sleep without it being about my personal philosophy or values about sleep or your personal yeah. philosophy or values, but really just stepping back, surveying the research, having a dialogue and a discussion about what research says about sleep and, um, you know, whether we draw some conclusions or what from there, just just being able to have that discourse without yep. all of the, the biases and, you know, philosophies involved, because I do know that this is a, you know, yep. this is a big topic. So, yeah, I appreciate Absolutely. that about you. And I'm sure that through the app, you probably hear about sleep all the time. So, <laughs> all the time. Yeah, it's definitely one of our most common challenges that parents come to us for. Um, so we, I spend a lot of time, a lot of time talking about sleep and um, people have a lot of really, really impassioned perspectives mm-hmm. about sleep. Um, or I hear from a lot of parents that are like, I'm really scared from reading all of this contradictory um, sometimes extremely strongly worded advice that mm-hmm. feels at odds and is making me feel like if I, you know, make one decision for my family and my child that, you know, if I co-sleep, they're going to be enmeshed and I'm going to ruin my child forever. And if I sleep train, I'm going to spike their cortisol levels and they're going to be stressed and I'm going to ruin right. their life forever. And parents are like, How, what am I supposed to do? And I don't understand. And so helping parents sort through the noise and take a non-biased look uh, is what we're all about. Cannot wait. Okay. So in starting this conversation, why don't we just kind of introduce the basic kind of typical stages, those early stages of sleep, uh, and just open up the discussion with what Uh those, you know, kind of look like. Obviously, everybody's family and child is a little bit different, but Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think 
sleep is one of those things that like when things you don't, sometimes you don't even really think about it until you're a parent. And then if sleep is not going well, um, and your sleep is disrupted as it, as it often is with newborns, um, it's all you can think about because if you're not getting enough sleep, it is exhausting. Um, but I think that leads you know, to this idea that some people have the idea that like maybe sleep should just happen naturally for babies, uh, but it, it doesn't. Um, some babies, based on their temperament, are naturally um, regulated sleepers, but it's a small it's a small percentage really of babies that can do that. Um, most babies need some support and some learning. It's a skill that they have to learn just like anything else. Um, and then there's kind of a continuum like most things with kids. Uh, they don't all look the same. Um, there are some broad expectations, but you know, so if we think about infants, zero to six weeks, which is its own home navigation in the sleep world, um, babies are getting 14 to 18 hours of sleep per day. Um, uh, and they're taking, you know, four to eight naps. So that's a, that's a pretty broad range. I mean, you would feel a four hour difference of your baby sleeping, but that's about what we would expect. And then just these tiny chunks of time between naps, you know, these 45 minutes to one hour. Um, when babies are six, and that's that early infancy, when babies are six weeks to three months, uh, things start to become a little bit more uh, regulated. Uh, total hours of sleep is 11 to 15 nap hours in a, in a, in a 24 hour period, naps drop to three to five. Um, and the time between naps starts to increase as you would expect. And that goes up, you know, usually at, at usually between three and six months, kids, kids are taking three naps and that can happen till nine months. And then you get into that dreaded mm-hmm. dropping of the nap, nine to 12 months, they go to two to three or 12 to 18 months, they go to one to two naps. And then, you know, when kids drop naps entirely is a sad day for <laughs> everyone sheds a tear world. on that day. Um, yeah. <laughs> everyone sheds a tear on that day. And, you know, some kids drop that nap really early. It can be, it can be, you know, too. Um, but some kids keep, keep that nap around for a while and nap until they're four. Um, so it really ranges. When kids get older, you want to target um, whether they're napping or not, like a total sleep time of 12 to 14 oh. hours, mm-hmm. um, roughly okay. is what you're looking for. Yep. So for toddlers, that would be the, okay, the goal. I love those guidelines. It's really really interesting. Um, it's, and I find, so like being a mom myself of, of three kids, uh, even within my kids, they've all been different in their sleep, um, and their ability to self-soothe or put themselves to sleep. And maybe this will be a topic that we can get into because again, that whole self-soothe term is a big, can be a trigger. Um, I know in some conversations, um, But yeah. yeah, so like even in my own experience with my boys, there's been variation in sleep. And then compared to my mummy group friends who, you know, they're like two or three-year-old dropped their nap. Um, my oldest son napped mm-hmm. right up until he went to JK. And um, and sometimes he wouldn't, but he's we still had yeah. cu- quiet time carved out in our home and he could take quiet activity into his room. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are sort of the, we talk about them as milestones or sort of what's 
kind of typical or the average uh. for development, but they're in no way hard and fast rules that your baby should and needs to be following, right? Um, yeah, so Absolutely. It's like more of like a guideline or a general, but not hard and fast rules. Yep. I think that's exactly right. It really, and all of the things, you know, with sleep, it's about, even when we look at the evidence, I think it should be less about, um, especially with something like sleep, because there, the evidence that's there can inform us about why sleep is important and what different approaches might mean and whether they're successful and whether they're harmful. But it's there's still a ton of latitude for parents to make their own decisions that consider their particular mm-hmm. child and their family um, and what's right yeah. for them. Okay. So I want to jump into, let's call it myths. Some of these myths or or dispel some of these fears that parents have. Um, and I'll just kind of maybe rhyme mm-hmm. off some things that I hear from parents often, and we can talk about some of the research and things around those. Um, you named them, yep. actually, kind of off the bat, some of the big ones. Is if I co-sleep <laughs> with my yeah. baby, then or, uh-huh. or maybe feed them to sleep or whatever, then they will mm-hmm. be enmeshed and they will, you know, when they're 18, still be sleeping in my bed type of thing versus right. the um, sort of the polarizing sort of opposite side of that is that if I let my baby cry to sleep or do some sort of sleep training, um, I will, I will I will rupture the attachment or connection I have with my child. So can we explore those a bit? Because those are really, those are heavy, heavy things. Yes. (laughs) Light topic. Yeah, let's do it. I think it's so important to talk about this. So with co-sleeping, of course, there's, there's, let's start there. Um, There is a ton of considerations around this. Um, certainly I don't, you know, I'd be interested to know what the guidelines are in Canada, but in the United States, um, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics advises against co-sleeping, um, for safety concerns around suffocation and things like that. Um, but my, in terms of development of the child, um, they're, is not evidence that children don't learn how to sleep independently. And it's worth noting that there are many cultures all over the world where co-sleeping is normal. Um, And there are some pediatricians that are a bit more flexible in the guidelines and will will work with families to say, um, you know, that it it might be okay to co-sleep under certain circumstances. So, you know, following guidelines around um, doing it safely, meaning that neither one of the parents, um, you know, is using any substances before they go to sleep that might cause them to sleep too deeply, or, you know, they're not tobacco users, that there's not a lot of comforters on the bed. There's guidelines around doing it safely. Um, and obviously, that's a that's an important consideration that mm-hmm. families should weigh as they're navigating the, the co-sleeping space. Um, the other thing is that uh, 
it's, but in terms of the emotional impact of co-sleeping, the research does not support that there's long-term damage for parents that choose this for their child. They're not more enmeshed. They're not less able to self-regulate. Um, and again, this is something that's largely practiced in, in, in certain areas of the world. Um, and it's very normal. So, uh, you know, while there are safety concerns and things like that, those are certainly mitigated successfully with some careful considerations. Um, the other thing to think about with co-sleeping is that it can look, it can occur in a number of different ways. There can be all night co-sleeping versus partial night. Um, and then there's what I call, you know, proactive versus reactive, um, which this is a, a conversation I often have with parents is, uh, are you co-sleeping because you want to be, or are you co-sleeping out of desperation because you've sort of found yourself in this situation where you are co-sleeping, mm-hmm. but you don't want to be. Um, and so thinking about, you know, what the goals are, are for the parents, um, And the other thing is sometimes parents choose to co-sleep for the first six or 12 months. And that doesn't mean that you have to co-sleep for the long haul. Um, You know, you, sometimes I have parents that say I had a wonderful co-sleeping experience for 12 months and now I'm ready Mm -hmm. to make a transition. You know, I had, I'm, you know, did some co-sleeping, co-sleeping can be in the room and not in the bed. And now we're ready to transition into their own room. So there's again, like a number of ways that this can look. Um, And I think the important considerations are um, what's the quality of sleep for the child? What's the quality of sleep for the parent? And what are the parent's goals? What do they want this to end up Mm -hmm. looking like and when? And how you support parents in meeting those goals really depends on on what those goals are. Um, And it's different for every family, but none of those circumstances that I just named would be implicated as being harmful developmentally long-term for children. Um, So I think those are the things to kind of think about in terms of co-sleeping. It's it's really interesting because when we think of co-sleeping, um, again, like it's so all or nothing. This topic can become so all or nothing, right? Um, they're mm-hmm. sleeping like, you know, you've got a family of five and they're all sleeping in the same bed till they're 18. It's like, no, let's stop and, and right. step back no. a moment <laughs> because we had a co-sleeper and it was attached to the side of my bed, um, you know, sort of. So baby's uh-huh. in between hubby and I, he's on the outside of the bed and he's attached and uh, he stayed there for mm-hmm. like four months. Each of my boys stayed in the cold sleeper attached to the side of the yeah. bed for four months. And then everybody's sleep started to become affected by waking each other up, um, just more by like stirring and noises and stuff like that. And then we decided to make the transition and that worked mm-hmm. for our family. And, you know, and we we did that and, and figured it out. Yeah. Um but to say, you know, I'm a co- I sleep train or I co-sleep or whatever, we have these sort of these myths or these ideas of what that looks like in our mind that, mm-hmm. you know, it becomes such, mm-hmm. so all or nothing. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. And, and it's, it, there, this looks so many different, realistically, there's so many different configurations of what this looks like for families that it speaks to, there isn't a one size fits all, even, even within the domains of the co-sleeping side and the sleep training side, like there's fluidity and variation, uh, between those two, um, 
uh, approaches. And I think, you know, healthy sleep and co-sleeping can absolutely exist. And the, the really simple guidelines that I talk to parents about are, you know, are all parties okay mm-hmm. with it? Uh, are all parties able to sleep? Uh, is everyone actually mm-hmm. sleeping? <laughs> and do you have or want an exit strategy? And is that six months? Is it one year? Most kids stop co-sleeping on their own around seven. Again, there's variability in that too, because that's the theme. And you know, thinking about a workable plan that feels right for your family within those parameters. Um, you know, usually if people are doing it out of desperation, that that's when I would say, let's, let's rethink this. Um, but if it's, you know, within the parameters of something that they want, it's, it can absolutely be a viable option for a family and the right, the right option. for a family. I so appreciate your perspective on this. That's so valuable because some people, this may align with their parenting philosophy and that's the, the choice that they, they want to make for them and their family. And it's like, okay, yeah. how do we do that safely? How do we, you know, encourage that if that's something that you feel like is important for your bonding and your connection and all of those things and, and do it in a safe way versus um, out of desperation, you know? And it's like, I want to be in my own bed and I want my baby to be sleeping and I, and I want us to, you know, and then that becomes a whole other conversation of, of having to do it and, you know, that whole planning for sleep and that whole discussion shifts them because it's not out of a value and a desire. It's out of a, a a need going unmet by everybody. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, and, and, you know, that's when it's, it's really helpful to partner with somebody that can talk you through a range of options versus just one. And, and some of those options might be inclusive of, moving to the other, the quote, other side of things, sleep training. And there's many, many ways mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Too. And that does yeah. not look so let's, the same. Let's step into it. Let's, let's do it. Let's, let's go there. there. Because, yeah. Um, I know that there is some research yeah. about this too. And, and the, so the polar opposite of, you know, my kid's going to sleep with me till they're 18 type of thing to the, the polar opposite being that if you're sleep training your baby, you are putting your own needs before theirs is one of those myths, right? Yeah. Um, it's a selfish thing to do. Uh, how could you let this helpless mm-hmm. baby cry? Like there is a lot that gets put out there and I'm on Instagram. I'm in this digital space and I see it. I see it all. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah, let's go there. Yeah. I mean, my, my personal philosophy is that, well, you know, in, in the same way that I feel it's really important to advocate for parents who want to make the choice around co-sleeping. I feel it's very important to advocate for parents who make the choice around sleep training. And, um, and that is based on, um, uh, what I think if we can take emotion out of it, looking at the research and what it shows, because just like the research shows that, um, you know, uh, appropriate sleeping is possible in a co-sleeping situation. The research also supports that if sleep training is something parents want to do, um, the research supports that it is 
it is effective um, as a start because if it didn't work, then then we shouldn't we shouldn't probably mm-hmm. explore it as an option. And then the thing that people really worry about is is it damaging to children? And largely speaking, um, there really isn't evidence that it's damaging. There is some extrapolation of ideas um, and theories um, that people make, which I can I can get into mm-hmm. more detail about if you're interested. But largely, the research is showing that, um, and, and I, in my opinion, wholly, the research is showing that sleep training is not. Damaging. Yeah. yeah. So what? So what were the theories? I'm so curious to know. You just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the things that you hear about, and it's you know, it's worth saying. Like, I'm even so sensitive to this that I sometimes don't use. Uh, like, I don't like the term gentle sleep training because it implies that like some parents doing something like super harsh on the other end of that. I respect Or, that. you know, yeah, I, I, I don't where like where you're coming from because yeah. if someone wants to fully cry it out, it's like they're, they're choosing right. to harm their child. It and it's like, well, no. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like I think the terminology kind of matters. And sometimes, you know, I even, I, uh, you know, no cry, I think is sometimes a misnomer because mm-hmm. babies cry. And even if you're doing um, what I tend to refer to as, as gradual extinction versus full extinction, um, you know, there's tears and gradual extinction too. And there's tears sometimes when I work with co-sleeping parents when they wean, or there's tears sometimes when I work with co-sleeping parents that are moving the baby out of the bed, but into a sleeper in the room. And, you know, it can be, they can respond in a way that perhaps over time, very slowly using a gradual extinction response um, and shaping that they're responding to those tears quickly. But I think to cry it, to call it no cry is sometimes, um, sometimes well, misleading. Yeah. And like, frankly. let's just put it out um, there that babies cry, right? Babies cry because yeah. that is their, one of their if not the, you know, main primary way to communicate with their caregiver. And like my 16-month-old has like a few words, but he still cries to communicate strongly when he wants or doesn't want something or whatever. So um, I think that one one thing that happens though is that when babies cry, it triggers something in parents. Right. And this is this is something Absolutely. that's really important is that and, and something that I learned, I think by the time I had my second or third kid, I grew a tolerance for this. Is that um I used to I used to get so anxious when my when my firstborn would cry. I wanted to fix the problem. I wanted to like, you know, make him stop crying. And mind you, he was a colicky baby and he cried a lot, a lot, a lot. So it's part of that naturally, obviously, if he's in pain, we don't want him in pain. But um, but exactly. I learned to have a tolerance for and control my own anxiety around my child crying because there is a, there's a yeah. difference in a I'm crying because I'm in pain and I'm crying because I'm protesting and there's there's a difference. That's exactly right. And I think it's you know it's that backs up right into you know what are some of the theories. I think the theories largely come. Um, around 
the 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 research in in attachment theory, um, and it's interesting because I studied I studied attachment theory in college. My dissertation, you know, utilized attachment theory as a framework. Um, and in the original attachment theory, when we're thinking about John Bowlby, who first started writing about this, and Mary Ainsworth, who are classic psychologists, they, they never talked about sleep training. Like they really, like it wasn't. That's right. not what they were talking about. Um, uh, and so the application of attachment theory to sleep training is um, uh, born out of attachment theory, but it's not from, you know, directly from attachment theory. And so one of the, one of the prime places that this comes from is um, some studies done on children in the 1980s who were in orphanages uh, in, in Romania. And these children were, experiencing a lot of abuse and neglect um, and a lot of horrific things. But one of the things was that they didn't have a lot of contact from adults. And uh, one of the things that's famously written about is that the children were sort of eerily quiet. Like they didn't, Mm. they didn't cry. And the theory was, or the idea was, and what they saw was that the children stopped crying because the crying that was used as a signal to get their needs met uh, were, was not effective. It, adults didn't come and help them when they cried. And so mm. they stopped crying. Um, and these children had a host of difficulties over their lifetime. And uh that has become uh, utilized potentially to think. So is there a, a similarity to letting a child cry during for three or four days in the process of sleep training? Is that akin to these children in these mm. Romanian orphanages? And that's a lot of where it comes from. Uh, and, and looking at attachment theory and saying like babies utilize cries as a cue and children who have their cues responded to consistently from caregivers have secure attachment. That's true. Um, but it doesn't mean that if a parent doesn't respond to every cue, sleeping or not, that they're going to have a disrupted attachment. And there have been some studies that directly looked at attachment in children that were sleep trained, like saying, okay, let's put this question to the test. Like, let's put it to scientific rigor because um, extrapolating and saying like, well, this experience is somewhat similar, even if it's on a continuum, to these children in these Russian orphanages. And and we know from attachment theory that it's important to respond to kids. So therefore, maybe sleep training is something similar. Um, you know, that's mm-hmm. a that's a theory. And so there was some there was some researchers who decided after, of course, a lot of debate in the literature to um put it to the test and to um there was some good randomized control trials because there's there's often even if a study is published, it doesn't mean it's a great study, um, and it you know there can sometimes be problems in research. Um, and one of them being you know selection bias of the groups, and so the sort of the 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 gold standard is these studies that 
randomly assign people to groups by saying like, you're going to sleep train, you're not. And they, there were some studies, um, unbelievably that got parents to participate (laughs) and do this. And, um, if we can believe it. And uh, one of them was a, a study in Sweden that had 95 families. And they basically, you know, this took place in 2004. And they found that there was no impact on attachment. And in fact, there was even some evidence that the babies were potentially um, happier. Um, I think that could maybe be that the parents were sleeping more. And um uh, you know, sleep has a huge mitigating factor on maternal oh, yes. depression, which is something part. that I'm mean, you're, mm-hmm. you're very, yeah, passionate about. And so, you know, and that, but what's interesting is that study followed the kids. And in, and in 2006, they went back, you know, when they were almost six years old and said, are there differences between the sleep training and the, and the, the non-sleep training group? And they found that there were no differences. There weren't differences in quality of sleep. There weren't differences really in any of the major categories, um, including attachment, that it just mm. it just wasn't supported um, and there wasn't long-term damage. So there seems to be evidence, and there are other studies that looked at this too, there seems to be evidence that it's not damaging to children when we look at you know what research is telling us um, and that there are plenty of, of children that longitudinally have been followed that aren't damaged and don't have disrupted attachment from doing this. And at the same time, you know, children that are that are not co-sleeping are also, you know, not showing a difference in the, in their attachment. There's not a difference between these groups. So then it comes down to the research isn't telling us, therefore you must sleep train. The research is telling us there's there's not harm in it. And so if it is something that's right for your family, like what they found was parents who wanted to sleep train reported higher levels of satisfaction mm. after they did. And higher quality of sleep, which makes sense. So it's saying, you know, the research is saying it's fine. Either way, it's not damaging. Choose what's right for wow. you. Wow. Like I am um, just soaking this all in right now because I've never like seen it in that like linear of a way before, like laid out that way. And there's research from something Winnicott, and I can't remember the name, but talking about the good enough mother. And the good enough mother responds to their child's needs appropriately 30% of the time in order to foster and build secure attachment, right? So you're talking about these babies in Romania in an orphanage that are not being socialized, their needs are not being met in a timely manner, not in the just in the nighttime, day and night all the time, not being held, not being nurtured, right. not being interacted with, not being exactly. socialized, not being like all the things, right? And not, not yes. 30% of yep. the time, like 100% of the time, maybe they're getting like 10% of interaction. I don't know, I'm pulling figures like, you know, out of like as a as a example here, yeah, right. really, like let's really say you know, maybe yeah. their needs are being attuned to 5% of the time in this orphanage because it's understaffed versus like a mom who's sleep training, like you said, usually, and if you're doing the full-fledged sleep training, usually that's like what, a two or right. three day event in the child's life and yeah. and then typically yeah. over. Four days. Um, yeah. so, so drawing yeah. a comparison from those, from that research to, you know, and then that, that child who you're, you're doing those three days of sleep training with, um, every other moment in life aside from bedtime is being, 
attuned to and held and nurtured and fed and sang yeah. to and and dealt with so, you know, like, and, and not to say gently because yeah. letting exactly. a baby cry isn't, it's not abuse, like, you know, so right. wow, mm-hmm. like I'm blown away by that. I'm blown away. Yeah, yeah. it's really, uh, it, it's fascinating. And there's, you know, and there's a lot of, um, that happens a lot in research, I think, where things become overstated. Like there's one, I mean, just because it's on the topic of sleep, but there's one on um, white noise and rats, which is so fascinating. And like there was this, there was this um, statement sort of in, in pop, you know, colloquial, like everyday parenting circles where it was like, you can't use white noise because it's harmful for the development of babies' brains. And it's like, oh, is that true? And when you went, and sometimes, of course, like sometimes even it would be cited, like they would have the citation on the blog, like white noise harmful to babies' brains and it has the little, you know, has the footnote and you go down. If you read that study, it's a study on rats where rats are exposed to a very high decibel of white noise mm-hmm. for a very extended period of time. And it shows yeah. that the rats had more difficulty completing some mazes and, and they had some ideas about the cognitive impact of that. Um, that's not the same thing and doesn't necessarily appropriately generalize to children using white noise at a low level during sleep. Like it's it's just not the same right. thing. But then I know. the research kind of gets glossed over and twisted and put forward. And it's something that I think is it's a disservice to parents because I think it it creates fear where there doesn't necessarily need to be fear and it's misleading. Right. And 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 like this is one of the things that I I really um appreciate about you and try to seek out in in the guests that I have on here is like that that you have the whole breadth of research. Do you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. it's not about um, taking pieces of research to fit in with your values and your philosophy, but it's about stepping back, putting all the research together and really trying to understand. Because at the end of the day, I feel like these polarizing camps on sleep yeah. um, are both fear-driven. Sure. You know, it's like, I'm going to make a decision to co-sleep because I'm fearful that I'm going to like hurt my baby by mm-hmm. by letting them sleep train. But potentially it's something that I feel like is a good fit for my family because exactly. we're all we're all struggling. No one's getting sleep and I'm doing this out of necessity and like mm-hmm. I'm trying to survive. Or the person who is um like sleep training feeling that oh my gosh, I'm I'm going like I, I need to do this for my survival, yeah. but I feel like I'm I'm breaking or harming or doing some kind of damage to like is my baby gonna love me still? Yeah, absolutely. You know? absolutely. And both of those positions are like fear driven and fear based. And I absolutely love your approach of like, let's step back here. Whatever you want to do that aligns with your parenting values and your philosophy, that is okay. And there is a range in each of those decisions that you can walk through that you can be happy with. And and I actually launched last week um, a, a guide for like a motherhood roadmap guide and a fatherhood roadmap yeah. guide. Parents can either do it separately or walk through it together so that they can work through their own personal values mm-hmm. and motherhood values in order to form their own parenting philosophy. Absolutely. 
Because you are allowed to want to co-sleep or you are allowed to want to sleep train Uh um, even if that's not what the mom in your mommy group is doing. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I feel – I love that. I love that you're doing that and giving parents an opportunity to reflect on what's genuine and right for them. Um, because I, and I do, I think there is, there's so much shame around all of, I mean, that's what fear-based parenting leads to, you know, these, these fear-based philosophies, it leads to the parents feeling shame. I mean, I've had parents say, you know, I feel embarrassed that my child is co-sleeping and I feel embarrassed that I wasn't able to come up with this plan. And, you know, in my circle of friends, you know, the, the, the norm was, sleep training and it was felt like a competition of whose kid was, you know, sleeping how many hours first. And, you know, I feel a lot of shame around that. And I've had other parents say, you know, I feel a lot of shame around the fact that I've sleep trained. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's everybody, it does everybody a service to take a step back and realize that, um, there are many ways to do this and it's about figuring out the fit for your family and not, utilizing research and theory as a weapon to shame other people around their decisions or to, to misuse research and overstate the meaning of it because that's really confusing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a really hard one, right? Like, because you are in the research and you can say, wait a minute, like, what is this source? Oh, this was a, this was a study on rats. Like, how what? are we generalizing our baby's behavior based I on? I love it. It's like my favorite pastime is like, like when someone makes a statement. I'm like, let me see. <laughs> I'm going to go to the original source and like see what this actually says. Because right. completely different. Or I'm like, that's quite a leap. That's quite a leap we've made. Well, and even like I've read that, like the Bowlby attachment work, like I don't know how mm-hmm. many times. I'm like so, like I love attachment, mm-hmm. like styles and perspective. And, you know, some of it in these days is changing and shifting, but yeah. I still, I love it. I've read it like I don't know how many times and about the orphanages and about the different things. And I it's never clicked in my mind to have that critical like, wait a minute. Like, how did we make that jump? Like, how did we take this and generalize it to a behavior that's hardly like hardly comparable? Right. And there are some, you know, and I think, you know, certainly – I mean, there is a psychologist that there's a very popular article that that is literally called The Dangers of Crying Out. And it's written by a psychologist who talks about attachment. And in her perspective, you know, she says, I understand that this isn't the same as these children in Romania, um, but attachment and the severity of this exists on the spectrum. And, you know, we it's possible that even in this low dose, we're creating these patterns. Um, And that's a theory. That's a theory that she holds. And I don't think that theory is supported. Even if you're saying, I recognize it's not the same as these children in the orphanages. It's a theory that she holds even in the, even in the minor space, but I don't think that there's been research that supports that. Um, You know, the other highly, um, publicized study is the one about the cortisol levels. I don't know if you know, if you're, if you've oh. like you've ever seen that one come up. Spill the tea. Spill the tea. I want to hear it. <laughs> so the, uh, uh, doc, you know, famous, the, the famous or infamous Dr. Sears, um, talks about, uh, 
um, a study that he did not do. It was a cortisol study that looked at um, 25 kids in New Zealand and was looking at, um, they basically had the parents come into the lab and they had them do sleep training with their kids. And they measured cortisol levels in the mother's blood and and in the baby. Um, and we're looking at those levels um, before the sleep training started and then, and then later in the night. Um, and they found that, well, first of all, they found that after uh, three days, most of the babies were sleep trained, which was a nice, a nice bolster of um, it, this works. Um, and they found that it, there was a consistent level of cortisol in the mothers and in the babies. Like it was the same the first day before and after sleep training. And in the babies, it was the same in the first day before and after. And in the third day, um, for the mothers, the level of cortisol dropped, but the the levels of the babies didn't drop. And what's interesting is that, so this has been interpreted as there was a uh, a mismatch in the in the cortisol levels of the babies and the mothers, and so that could be indicative of a of a disruption in attachment. Um, and also, uh, it has sometimes been reported like the cortisol levels were raised for the baby, even though that they weren't crying. But what's fascinating is that that study doesn't talk about baseline cortisol levels. Like it's really unclear if it was raised. And it's mm. also unclear if it's problematic. Like, do 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 mothers and babies need to have the same pattern of cortisol levels around sleep? Like, what are the implications of that? And they didn't follow them for more than four days. So there are there are issues around that, but it's something, you know, this study that I think is inconclusive in terms of what it means. It's not saying the baby's cortisol levels were raised and they stayed raised for hours and hours and they were raised the next day. Like it's not saying that. It's not even clear if they were raised, but that is sometimes put forth. Um, you know, I've seen it in blogs and I've seen it in other places where, you know, we'll say, well, there's there's evidence and there's science and studies show that if you sleep train, you're um, irrevocably raising the baby's cortisol levels and causing them an extreme amount of distress. And I think that that's, again, like an overstatement of that study and what it's trying to show. And it's dangerous. Because it's like, yeah, movie. well, and it's putting it out there with such vague detail. Because like you said, there was no follow-up or like further, you know, yeah. inquiry into it that yeah. it's just vague and leads people to like draw their own conclusions, essentially, exactly. of like what that means what or fill means. in the blanks when they're trying, like when they're making these headlines or using research in a way that, you know, um, yeah. To yeah. Like Isn't totally clear. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's really, I mean, I think that those are the things and, and I bring them up, you know, because, um, wonderful parents who care, you know, so deeply about their children are doing their due diligence and, and, and going online and reading this information. And of course are thinking, how am I supposed to make heads or tails of what this means? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. it feels like it's all over the place. And, um, you know, how can I critically look at these studies and understand if they're, if they're done well or not done well. And, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to suss all that out. And that yeah. doesn't mean that there's not parents out there that might say, you know, I mean, when I work with a parent that wants to do sleep training, um, 
there's all sorts of variability in that, you know, whether or not the parent is in the room, their level of involvement in terms of, you know, how how much they as a parent are utilized in the mechanism of regulating that child, um, how long they wait, whether they stay in the room, whether they go back in or not, the length of sleep they want to achieve. There's all sorts of variables that impact Mm. the decision parents make around their approach. And, you know, I might still have parents that say, you know, I understand the evidence isn't clear, but I just feel strongly about this, you know, or I'm going to look at the evidence and this is my interpretation of what the research shows. And this is what I feel comfortable with. And I'm like, great, let's start from there. Like that's okay, yeah. but but let's not overstate that it says something. You can still look at what it says and make a decision that's right for you, but we shouldn't look at it and say it says something it doesn't. Like that's and, like it's so important. And and what you're saying is like being values and philosophy led is very different than being fear led. Yes. Right. Yeah. So you exactly. can feel strongly that you want to have like autonomous sleeping arrangements. Yeah. You know, or you can feel very strongly that you want to be a family of five who pushes two king size beds together and okay. like has slumber parties. That's, right. That's totally okay. Um, if it's coming out of a place of your actual desire and exactly. your own values as a family. Yeah. Um, when you really need to step back and look at it or potentially consult a coach or a psychologist or somebody who can offer, like you said, that range of, of insight and interventions um, is when you're doing it as a means of survival because you just don't have the, the the skills or the tools or the understanding or you need the support. Yeah, exactly. I love that framework. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So Brings me to one last, you know, important point that I want to talk about, and you had mentioned it off the top, was that sleep is a skill that babies learn. Mm-hmm. And um, self-soothing is a is a term that's getting a lot of bad rep yeah. um, because, again, if we take that to an extreme, that might look like leaving baby in the crib to cry uncontrollably yeah. with no support from mom or dad. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about how babies learn the skill? What about self-soothing? Like is self-soothing a an awful thing to teach baby? Can right. we unpack it a bit? Yeah. You know, I think – when in if it, it, when we think about regulation, which is sort of what we're talking about, or, or the ability to self-soothe is sometimes called regulation. When babies are infants, it's that is totally mitigated by the parent. Like they are regulating their child, right? Um, it's really led by the parent. Um, when, as kids move through development and get a bit older, then there's something called co-regulation where like the parent is working in sync to help the child regulate a little bit more on their own. Hopefully, eventually you move to self-regulation um, where the child learns how to do that independently. But throughout the lifespan, you know, it's not like a child wakes up when they're, you know, two years old and they have moved from entire regulation to co-regulation. Like it's, it's a continuum and kids are moving back and forth on their continuum. Um, you know, even adults who are, who are able to self-regulate 
you know, my car broke down. I, I, I called my mom. Like, I don't, I wanted that regulation. Like, and it's not because, you know, I couldn't do it, but it's because that does make us feel better. And that is helpful. And sometimes being co-regulated by somebody else is a helpful thing. Um, but it's, so I think it's first understanding that like these aren't, it's a process that you're moving the child towards in their developmental trajectory rather than these like static, the child totally has to be on their own to learn how to self-regulate. That makes sense. Yeah. I love how you put that. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, you know, when we think about, when we think about babies um, and, these these tiny babies, especially around sleep, are babies, how are babies soothing, right? And there are things that soothe babies that are parent involved. And there are things that soothe babies that are not parent involved, right? So sometimes there are tools. And before six weeks, it's sort of like everything's a mess. Babies you know, nights and days are kind of switched sometimes around. They need to be fed extremely frequently. Um, You know, after six weeks, we can maybe, you know, if, if you're in a space where you're ready to think about this, you can start to think about, you know, what are the tools that uh, can help soothe, soothe the baby. And some of those tools don't necessarily have to be a parent, you know, for mm. example, why I, what I want to talk about tools that soothing, I say, okay, are these, is it soothing? Uh, how, what is the level of parent involvement? Um, can it work throughout the night and can you wean off of it? And it doesn't mean parents can't use some combination of things, but like, for example, if the tool is just the parent, then that means they have to be involved in that soothing other times. But there are some tools that aren't the parent. Like swaddling is a tool that helps babies soothe that isn't the parent. You know, white noise is a tool that helps babies soothe that's that's not the parent and you can wean it very very easily because you can gradually turn down the volume. So it's one of those things that you can kind of back off of. Um Things like pacifiers, baby swings, a lovey with a mother's scent, those are all tools that are not the parent that can be uh, allies in helping the child form independent sleep. Um, And you can use these tools, you know, three to six months uh, to help the child establish that independent sleep. And the goal of when you want to do that is usually the be- the beginning of the night, that first time they fall asleep. Um, a lot, if, if your goal, if your goal is independent sleep, a lot of tri- uh, trouble around sleep comes because the tool that puts the baby to bed and their sleep association that's formed is the parent. Meaning Mm. they're rocking the baby to sleep or they're nursing to sleep. And that becomes the primary sleep association. And then the baby wants to reestablish that sleep association every time they wake up. And so if that tool that's associated with falling asleep is the parent, then the parent has to get up and be involved in that. 
So a lot of the initial work, and you can do this, is figuring out other tools that help the baby learn how to soothe or how you can be involved as a parent, but shape your involvement to be less. So if baby had been nursing to sleep and the parents aren't happy with having to reestablish that sleep association... I'll talk to parents about a plan that works for them and that depending on the age of the child and their goals and all those things. But what that might look like is starting with nursing earlier in the night and you might rock to sleep. Okay, now we have a different association, but it's not nursing and you might want to deal with that one first. And then it's put the baby in a crib and jiggle the crib and rub their back. Now that's the association, but it's not rocking. Then we might move to just patting their back. So now that's the association, but it's not wiggling the crib. And so what you see what we're doing is the the human equivalent of turning down the white noise. So you're weaning out... Um, your involvement in that development of regulation. So it's not, and that doesn't mean that making a choice to, to not be as involved and use a more full extinction approach, depending on the age of the child, isn't also a viable choice. But Uh, you can use co-regulation as a strategy when we're talking about sleep and helping babies figure out how to self-soothe. That's an option. Yeah. You are like, this is just bringing up so many of even my own memories with the boys. Like it's so spot on because so with my first, as a first time mom, um, like pretty anxious and, you know, navigating this whole sleep thing and, and really at the time being pretty hard and fast in like an attachment perspective. Um, really had a hard time with sleep. And my first, he wanted to nurse to sleep and we hit like a four or five month sleep regression. And I tell you that this child was up every 45 minutes. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. Every 45 minutes. And like, and we tolerated this sleep situation until about seven months. And I was ready to lose my mind. Like it was out of desperation. Everybody wanted to be sleeping autonomously. Like this was not something that we planned or or Mm -hmm. wanted, or, you know, he had his own nursery, all these things. This was not our plan going in type of thing. Um, and then we really had to like reevaluate like gently or like not gently or like these are the words that I've been yeah, reading that I know I know they're coming out so like whatever. I've given myself a lot of practice of being oh my gosh I need to change I know but that's that's what I learned was like oh like now we need to try this like more harsh approach and I'm like but I don't want to break my baby you know like in this yeah. all of this shame and stuff um and, and I just I sought out the help of our pediatrician at the time and she was amazing. And I really trusted her advice and she walked us through some other methods we could try. And you know what? It was interesting at first. Um, and it was hard. I'm going to say like, like hard on baby, but I think my own anxiety was like a major part of the problem. And, um, at the end of the day, and like we were all, we were all getting sleep and the baby was happier, way happier. I was happier. And then with the second baby, um, we we introduced more of those tools that were not me to soothe because um, yeah. I just had two babies and and I and I felt more comfortable with yeah. that and you probably um, couldn't be the tool entirely. I, I didn't have even like you know the the ability to be so um, you know like like a human pacifier yeah. all the time and things mm-hmm. like that. So second baby got a lovey and a passy, and he was like 
he woke up a lot. Like all of my boys were like big and fed all the time and they woke up a lot, but he really did learn that skill with those tools Mm -hmm. to sleep. Like he, he was an exceptional sleeper compared to my first, because I, I introduced these tools for him to, to, like you said, do that self-soothing part or that. Um, and I was still there to like, you know, pat his back and sing him a song good night while he was like laying in the crib and whatever. But because he had a few tools on his own, um, Bedtime was just like such a more relaxed experience for yeah. us all. And yeah. and like like I said, our our approach has changed with each of our kids based on their needs. And and that's okay. It's no yeah. hard and fast Absolutely. rule. It's really, you know, like you said, having your goals from the get-go. Like, are we going to be a fa- like a co-sleeping family? Are we going to be a family who wants independent sleepers? Mm-hmm. And and what is the path forward in those goals? Exactly. Right? Yep. I think you nailed it. I told, I, that's exactly right. I think that's that's kind of the roadmap and, and you're right that I think when you being proactive and having a plan is definitely uh, the, the way to go. It's not the only way to go. Like sometimes I have parents think like, oh my gosh, I'm doomed because I didn't start, you know, I didn't, I didn't, start aligning with my plan when the baby was 10 weeks old. Like you can always course correct. You can always totally, um, you're right. That sort of being proactive and, and just giving, but I think what you're doing right now, like giving parents the space to reflect on what is my goal? What do I want? Like that's, and, and being able to do that in a space that isn't crowded with judgment and shame, yeah, going to allow there to be clarity and a plan that actually that that parents follow through with. You know, yeah. if they feel shameful or it feels counter counter to their values as parents, they're not going to do the plan. Yeah, so it really yeah. needs to be in line with their values, their goals, their family. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So, really, the takeaway here is that you as your family know your values, you know, as parents or as a parent or whatever the situation, and you can make value-based decisions for your family. If you don't know what your values are, you can check out my motherhood roadmap or fatherhood roadmap guide. It's at happyasamother.co slash shop to really do a deep dive into yourself and the type of parent you want to be and the values you want to hold. And once you know those, you can make decisions for your family and know that co-sleeping does not mean an overly enmeshed child for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And crying it out doesn't mean a broken, disconnected relationship with your child either. And that within those polar opposite camps, there are so many different tools and strategies that mm-hmm. you can use. And if you need support, I think that Dr. Elizabeth has mentioned some amazing things. Um, You know, if you are in distress and you're just in survival mode and you're doing these things as a reaction to the situation, seek out some support, someone who has a wide range in tools and values and philosophies when it comes to sleep. And Trestle, Dr. Elizabeth's um, coaching parent app is a really great place to start because they're evidence-based and they're accessible on your phone via text or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and get the help you need. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we at Trestle, we can help parents 
figure out a plan that works for them, that can be implemented with them, and and we can support them through the implementation, which is also really helpful. Um, And you can get a dedicated coach, including an initial consultation, um, that with the ongoing messages and support, um, we can give, uh, we usually charge $150, but your listeners can get $40 off. They can go to trussell.com slash sleep and trussell is spelled trust with an l and an e dot com slash sleep and use the code happy Um, and then parents can get that get that discount if they're interested but I I love your summary and I, I think it is whether it's us or somebody else finding somebody that can support a parent um from a framework of of their values I think. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. This was so meaningful to have you as I, I get to know you. I, you know, love, love you more with your perspectives and the the value that you bring. So thank you for showing up and helping parents. Thank you. We'll chat again soon. I'm so sure. Thanks. Can't wait. Thanks, Erica. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job. <laughs>